we've got a big show today, Corey. We do. Today, we're going to announce the winners of the 2023 Ivory Prize for Housing Affordability. Corey, I have to stop you there. It's 2022. We're here to talk about the 2022 Ivory Prize for Housing Affordability. Uh, I know it's 2022, Kent, but you always get the jump on us. Every year when we do this show, we're excited to talk about the finalists and the winners for the first time ever in public. And every year, you say you've already announced them right before this episode. So, so I thought this year, we'll get the jump on you. We'll announce next year's winners before you even start the process. I don't know, Corey. I have to agree with Kent on this one. We have enough great ideas to cover with this year's finalists and winners. I don't think we need to get ahead of ourselves and miss out on some really interesting innovations. All right. I I guess you're right. Uh, So on today's show, we're going to talk about the 2022 Ivory Prize for Housing Affordability and announce the winners for the first time ever in public. Uh, You didn't announce them yet, did you, Ken? Uh, Well... Hello and welcome to this episode of the Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast. I'm Corey Aber. And I'm Steve Guggenmoss. I'm really excited to talk about the 2022 Ivory Prize for Housing Affordability. This is the fourth annual prize, our fourth annual episode, and our fourth time welcoming Kent Colton to talk about the prize. Kent is the president of the Colton Housing Group, the former CEO of the National Association of Home Builders, and the chair of the Ivory Prize for Housing Affordability Advisory Board. We're also joined for the first time by Abby Ivory, Managing Director of Ivory Innovations. Kent and Abby, it's great to have you both here on the show. Great to be back. It's great to be here. <laughs> Thanks. Sure. We have a lot of great topics to cover today, including hearing about what's been happening with some of the prior winners. But just in case some of our listeners haven't been tuning in for the past three years, Can we start with a brief explanation about the Ivory Prize for Housing Affordability? Absolutely. The Ivory Prize is an annual award that recognizes nonprofits, for-profits, and also government entities who are finding new and innovative ways to drive housing affordability and make it more attainable for the average American. So we're really focused on innovations that are driving affordability. And we use the Ivory Prize to kind of go out and look for these innovations across the country and see how we can help them become stronger. When we identify someone that we think is doing something amazing, We want to help them figure out the ways that they can scale, ways that things can be replicated in other areas, or just grow these amazing ideas overall. And this last year, it's been a fun year. We've had 170 nominees come in from across the U.S., and we're really excited to talk to you a little bit more about all these different companies and nonprofits and ideas today. That's great, Abby. I want to build suspense just a little bit. Can we talk about the nomination process a little bit? And and then we'll get into some of the finalists and all the great stories. But we'd love to hear about how you come up with all of these uh, nominees and how you make the decisions. Yeah, absolutely. We're based at the University of Utah, and we run a student program here. And so we have about 10 interns that help us source nominations. And we also run a course on uh, innovations in housing. And both of these two groups of students really help us to kind of hone in on what's innovative, what's happening right now. And then we also get a lot of different referrals through our partners. And so we work closely with the Turner Center at Berkeley, with the Joint Center of Housing Studies at Harvard, and a couple other big groups that, you know, VCs, people who are really looking or working in this space, impact capital. And we work with them to 
pull in who we think the most innovative companies are that year. We also do a lot of research on what's happening in the government side of things. So if a policy is being passed, uh, something's changing on, on the regulatory front for a state or for a local municipality, we'll really key in on that. And we use our students to source a lot of different things as we kick off nominations, which is usually in September. And then we go through a huge process. And so of these 170 nominations or nominees, like I've been on the phone with all 170 of them. And we talk to them and learn more about what they're doing, why what they're doing is innovative, how it's, you know, has a really big impact in housing affordability, what they think they could do to scale. And uh, we'll really take time to get to know these different companies. And then the students kind of pull together everything we find into a bunch of one page memos and those memos go to our judges who then kind of take our process and narrow down that 170 to a top 25 group that we release um, in February. And then we take that top 25 and we go back and the judges get on the phone with them and we do a little bit more diligence and get to know them a little bit more, address specific questions people have had, and then come up with a top 10. And then from the top 10, same thing we get you know, a little bit deeper. And then we announce our winners. And this year, the winners have been announced, I guess, on May 19th. So it's a it's a fun process. And it, it takes a minute to get through. But we really appreciate the students putting a lot of time in and research and our partners that give us referrals and also our judging or advisory board team that spends a lot of time really getting to know these companies and asking the right questions and, and working on that side of things. And I just might add a note on that because uh, a lot of prizes uh, are fairly straightforward. People will fill out the nomination materials and then people will, you know, ask questions and, and go forward and make decisions. The student part of this is what really makes it not only very effective, but uh, really interactive and fun for the judges. And uh, they make a big difference. And it's just really invigorating to work with the students so deeply as a part of this process. I'm sure that's true. I think maybe if we've got some younger listeners, they'll go to the University of Utah <laughs> to become a part of this process because it sounds absolutely fantastic. But 170 nominees and working them down through a very labor-intensive process and very thorough, clearly. There's also, I know, as we've talked about in recent years, different categories that these fall into. And you start to do cutting of the nominees that way as well. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So we have three different categories that we look, or like lenses that we like to look at this issue through. And I guess that would be the public policy and regulatory reform, and then financial innovation, and then also construction and design. And so we actually have students placed on each of these teams so that they get to know the issues in their area a little bit better. And then we work with all the companies as we're pulling through just to kind of figure out where they fit. And, you know, a lot of people who are doing work in this space have overlap into multiple categories, right? So we just pick which category most aligns with what they're doing. But I mean, you it's really hard to actually <laughs> come in and innovate and change something within housing on the construction side without actually looking at what's happening in policy or like the regulatory space. And same thing on the financial side, some construction solutions involve you know, new ways of thinking through financing. And so I think there is always a lot of overlap, but we try to split those up. And then what we end up doing is judging on a few different things. So we really look at the potential scalability or replicability of an idea. That's a big thing for our judges. And then how much something is pushing innovation, pushing change in the space that like, you know, we just need so much change in the construction 
world and the housing space, we haven't seen change in so long. And so we're in a place where we're really ready for that. And we're hoping that people can be a little more receptive to that and doing all we can to help them see benefits to change, which is hard because people don't love change all the time. But it's really a fun space to be in. And so those are a couple of things that our judges look at. And, you know, we could get deeper on that too. But overall, I think it's just really important to look at those categories. And then this year, we've had a couple of themes come through. And every year, as we look at 170 companies from across the country, we're always thinking, what is new? What's different uh, than what we've seen before? And so we've had a few that I think Kent and I will talk through. But uh, we can go through and mention those a little bit now, if that's helpful. Just thinking through equity, that's been a really big theme over the last couple of years. How do we help make housing more attainable for everyone, regardless of skin color, regardless of anything that's happened? And housing has such a (laughs) history of racism, if you're thinking through redlining and all this stuff. And so a lot of people are rethinking this specific issue and coming up with solutions, which we really appreciate. And we've seen that as a big theme in the last couple of years. And then this year in particular, we have seen a lot of people looking at labor and labor is a massive issue that's just, you know, we don't have enough labor. How do we solve for this? How can we build faster if we don't have people? So one, you know, there's a couple ways people have really been looking at this, I think. And one is through education. How do we drive people into the trades? How do we help people understand that this is like a very viable vocation? How do we push people into that space? And so that's something we've seen a lot of companies and groups thinking through and governments as well. And then on the other side of that, I think the other thought is how do we do this without the people? And to me, that's kind of where we're getting a lot of factories, automation, all this stuff. And modular construction came through pretty heavy. We had a student that looked at a lot of different 3D printing ideas this year. I mean, how can we come up with different processes to really change that. So so those are a couple of themes. And then maybe Kent, if you want, you can touch on a couple of the other themes that we've seen this year too. Absolutely. A third one, which really is important, is the use of data to help drive decisions. And there's been some interesting uh, projects trying to sort of map information in terms of location of housing, trying to, to look at things that uh, will make it more effective in terms of pricing and costs, zoning issues, dealing with all of those kinds of decisions, as well as even trying to sort of grapple with an issue like homelessness, trying to identify the number of people out there that are homeless and trying to use data to not just do this in a big scale, but to look at it one by one, person by person. And then finally, uh, this year, we've had a lot of interesting efforts, uh, applications, if you will, with respect to government innovations on the policy regulatory side, and some that really I think are scalable, i.e. it might be done in one particular city or state, but it's certainly applicable to other cities or other states. There's, As you well know, everybody is grappling with housing affordability issues and obviously issues dealing with the shortage of housing. And one of the ways, obviously, you've deal with the shortage of housing is to build more housing. And that requires government innovation. It requires lifting some of the regulations that exist. So looking at those kinds of issues that are also uh, scalable from city to city or state to state is very important. I guess the other comment I made, and, and we've discussed this before, Steve and Corey, over the years, but even more so important 
There are a lot of big ideas and things that are going on out there, but what's been so fascinating about the Ivory Prize is if this is innovation that's taking place at the grassroots level. These are people that are coming up with an idea and saying, what can we do to try to solve an issue in our community? And then once they do it, we obviously are interested in saying, well, is that applicable or scalable in someplace else? But it, it really is fascinating to see not only what a serious problem it is, but how many people are out there trying to grapple with it that sometimes don't get credit for the amazing work that they're doing. That is so encouraging. There's a lot that's disheartening and a lot to be concerned about. But seeing so much going on, you know, each year you have so many nominees and, and so many people thinking about this, that gives a lot of hope and sense of optimism that we can tackle some of these uh, really difficult and, and longstanding issues. And with that in mind, uh, perhaps we can take a look at some of the finalists for this year and maybe break it down by, by category. So, Kent, do you want to start with uh, some of the finalists in the finance category? would be delighted to do that. Uh, this year, we have uh, three great candidates that are finalists in the area of finance. And I would say, interestingly enough, almost all of them relate to the issue that Abby was talking about when she talked about equity. This whole issue of trying to make housing and in particular affordable housing attainable for all, whether it's home ownership, affordable rent, etc. And so uh, there's some very creative things that are underway. One of them is Black Star Stability. They're centered in Washington, but they really are working all around the country. And they're doing some very creative financing work. If you recall, way back in the, in the Great Recession, when we had a lot of issues and, you know, the problems were completely different. We had too much housing and a lot of housing was going under, et cetera. There were lots of things that were going on that related to uh, what we would refer to as predatory lending, people that were lending in low-income communities that were really trying to take advantage of that. And quite frankly, in some of those, especially minority communities, but other low-income, whether minority or white, communities. There's just a lot of distressed properties that are still out there. And this Black Star Stability is really trying to expand equitable home ownership for affordable housing in single-family homes by attacking predatory lending practices and restructuring distressed properties. More specifically, they buy large pools of properties that were financed by what is referred to as CFDs, Contracts for Deeds, that were non-performing loans. Then they work with the families who own those loans to try to refinance them in ways that will reduce the rate uh, and often the size of the loan to allow people to continue to live in the house at a much better situation or to get out of the situation that they don't want to be in and to be able to move on, not be burdened with the debt that they have. And as I said before, often these were predatory loans and these folks were stuck. Low-income minority families are really the ones that uh, fit in this category, and, and therefore it really is an issue of equity. And if it can you know, make it possible for them to, in essence, get to a better situation of home ownership without some of the considerations and concerns that they had in terms of high interest rates, it's amazing. It, it helps monthly payments. It reduces foreclosure. It increases home ownership and helps to stabilize communities. And in essence, once they refinance, they then pool those loans 
and sell them. And again, try to provide stability over the time. It's interesting because it's innovative because uh, they're dealing with challenging financial markets and it's innovative with their mission, which is to target and help low-income home owners who have what is often referred to as small balanced properties, often less than $100,000 in challenging neighborhoods, especially in the Midwest and the Southeast. Thousands of families fall in this category and uh, Black Star Stability has really begun to make a difference in terms of the work that they're doing. So it's been, it's been fascinating to see what they're doing. I've got two others that I want to talk about, but with respect to any questions on Black Star. Kent, I, I don't think I have a question, but I am just uh, so impressed because I can picture just the burden that's lifted from these folks who have what are often predatory loans and finding that they're able to get away from that and maybe even stay in the home. That's absolutely fantastic. Maybe you can tell us about some other finalists in the finance category. Absolutely. Uh, the second one is uh, True Footage. This is a company which focuses on home appraisals. They made their first acquisition of a appraisal company in Seattle, and, and now they're spreading throughout the country in a, in a very rapid rate. That just to sort of step back for a minute, one of the greatest challenges as it relates to minority home ownership is appraisals, because quite frankly, appraisal values are not colorblind. And if you're in a minority neighborhood, a similar house can be significantly less in its value than, than something two miles, three miles, 10 miles away in a non-minority neighborhood. And there are discriminatory practices that uh, are going on. And True Footage is committed to sort of how do we build models that will be, quote, colorblind. <laughs> so you don't have to, to deal with uh, issues of discrimination and discriminatory practices. The other thing about the appraisal industry is a very white industry in terms of the people that are participating. And so what they are trying to do as they, and they're actually out, they've, they've raised venture capital, they're out buying appraisal companies. They're trying to also work at uh, trying to increase the diversity of the staff on the appraisal terms. If you're an African-American and you're living in an African-American community, it's nice to have the appraiser come to appraise your house who's also African-American. Doesn't always have to be that way but it, it helps to facilitate the kind of trust and the things that are happening. And so they're really working to try to diversify the appraisal industry. And it's been kind of remarkable to see what they've been able to do. They've raised uh, significant amounts of uh, venture capital money. Really, we're talking like $22 million from two different investors, and, and they're out purchasing companies, and they have grown significantly. And then they are looking at how can we make this uh, appraisal process, as I said before, more colorblind. So they're doing some very uh, interesting and exciting things and obviously also relate to some of those equity issues that we talked about before. That's a really high impact concept. That's, that's exciting. And I can see the connection between these two. And so I think we've got one more in the finance category, also neighborhood driven in some ways. It is very much. You're exactly right. And in fact, it's called Trust Neighborhoods. They're in Kansas City and they've got a very interesting idea. We talk a lot about homeownership, but obviously rental is key in terms of people being able to afford housing. 
and what they're trying to do is to kind of merge the concept of rental with bringing the neighborhood as a uh, investment vehicle to be a part of that process. In essence, uh, Trust Neighborhoods helps nonprofit organizations in cities across the United States set up what they refer to as Mixed Income Neighborhood Trust, MINTS, M-I-N-T-S, which develop, own, and operate mixed income rental properties. And their mission is to give residents the ability to stay in quality housing at affordable rents in neighborhoods that really are at risk. They may be at risk because of pricing pressures, neighborhoods that could well be gentrifying at the time. So prices are going up, residents are being displaced. But if, in fact, they can set up these mints, they can, in essence, make the people in the neighborhood part of that community and, in essence, give them a piece of the action so that, uh, yes, there are other investors, but the neighborhood investors also become a part of that process. They've done two successful projects. And generally, what they're doing is they're looking at, at what are referred to as naturally occurring affordable units. People often talk about naturally occurring affordable housing. They're talking about that's a complicated word for existing housing (laughs) before it's gentrified. It's out there. It already exists. That's the base. We want to keep that affordable and not let those prices go up. So they're looking at buying units in that category. And then they also will, in addition, as a part of the trust, acquire or renovate vacant units that might be out there. Some of them, in fact, may may have already kind of gone into foreclosure because of tax or other reasons, but they're vacant and they can upgrade those. Or to build new infill units in vacant lots that they can use again for rental housing. So again, a very creative effort to do two things, deal at the neighborhood base, but also look at the rental side and trying to give renters the opportunity to stay in that community and at the same time to provide a vehicle that will give them some involvement in the process. Yeah, that's a great one to round out the finance category. And certainly on our podcast, we care a lot about rental. And so it's great to hear about that one. We also obviously care a lot about neighborhoods. And as we know, people make connections there and it can be an area of opportunity that you want to stay in. And so that absolutely is something that is really impactful. With that, I think we'll transition over to the next category, which you did talk a little bit about how there's overlap. And the last one did involve some construction, but the next category is fully construction and design. And maybe, Abby, uh, do you want to speak to that one? Yeah, for sure. There definitely is a ton of overlap between all these categories. And I think, you know, we can talk through three really awesome solutions here in the construction and design space. And the first one that I'll bring up is a group called Eight Village. And Eight Village actually does have a financing component that is very important to what they're doing in the construction space. And so I'm sure a lot of people listening and you guys probably know about ADUs, which are accessory dwelling units. And we've seen this legislation has started to pass across the U.S. where we're allowing for additional units of housing to be built in people's backyards or they're just kind of rezoning so that you can put in a basement apartment in and, and it's all okay and or subdivide your units in some way just to provide for more housing in existing areas. And so 8 Village is an ADU-focused solution and they're in Atlanta, Georgia. And their project is called backyard ATL. And it's pretty interesting. This CEO, his name's Pavan. He's really amazing. He 
helps design. He's an architect. And so he designs these ADUs and then he goes out and has found people to help him build them in a pretty affordable way. Just watching this whole process, there's a couple of really interesting things about the way that he is building them, including like, you know, the way he's done the foundation and some of the different construction methods that he is using there. But he will go out, design, build, and then After these units are built, he ends up managing the units for tenants that own the homes. And he has procured financing from a bank. It's a larger loan that he takes out on multiple units at a time so that he's able to go out and build them and do whatever else. And then once they have tenants in there for a couple of years, so if you have someone paying rent for two years, you can then use that income as proof of income if you were to refinance a mortgage. And so it allows for the people who live in this housing that maybe can't afford building an ADU in their backyard to have one built in their backyard. Someone else manages it and then they can kind of refinance so that they own the ADU, they receive income coming in from this unit in their backyard. We've seen it to be really helpful for people in Atlanta. And one thing that's really awesome about this particular solution is It's been so hard for this ADU model to scale. And he's got, you know, I think 30 or so units in the pipeline for this year, which is a pretty high number, even though it sounds small for ADUs. It's a pretty decent sized number. And if he could continue to start growing this at 30 plus units a year, it would be pretty amazing. So that's a little bit about 8 Village, one of these construction and design solutions. And it's kind of fun. And then... Our next one that I'll bring in is a group called Forterra. And Forterra is located up in Washington. And they're a cross-laminated timber manufacturer and a real estate developer. And their goal is to develop a manufacturing pipeline for mass timber in the U.S. so that this is increasingly feasible for people to build with. And so cross-laminated timber, or CLT, is very strong. It's also very sustainable and can be used in a lot of different scenarios. And so their main focus is sustainability, which is something that is very important in the construction space, especially, you know, as, as like we always look for that to be in, incorporated in any sort of construction solution. And so they're using the CLT to develop affordable apartment buildings in historically disenfranchised communities up in Washington. They work a lot on forest conservation and how they can preserve and sustainably harvest the forests up in Washington. And then they have a strong mission-driven side of the company where they work to create a symbiotic relationship with different communities up in Washington, specifically indigenous communities where they're working with people who have been there for a long time and they want to make sure that they're not disrupting anything and they want to make sure that they're contributing. And so these guys have taken a strong community approach, but we really appreciate what they're doing on the sustainability side and also what they're doing to push CLT forward, which could be a really interesting new product for everyone as we're moving into the future, I guess. So that's a little bit about Forterra. And then our last one that we had pulled through on the construction design side is a group called Volumetric Building Companies, or VBC, and these guys are based in Philadelphia, and they are a modular construction company. So 
in my mind, modular construction is such a huge part of the labor solution, which we need so desperately. And they have really done some interesting things to be able to vertically integrate this whole modular construction process. Um, And they really work to simplify the complexity of building, reduce time and cost of construction. And then they will take everything through from the beginning of like architecture, figuring out logistics, go through manufacturing, and then construct these units. And their company can handle all of this, right? Which is really important, I think, as we're kind of figuring out modular construction because it is new for a lot of people and a lot of jurisdictions as they're getting new units built there. So BBC is an amazing fully turnkey approach that, you know, lets clients move through this rather quickly. They're fast. They're really efficient. They've done well with building. They're doing some expansion into Europe, uh, have learned a lot from other things people have done in Europe and other places as well. And I'm really excited to see where these guys go moving forward as they have such potential to expand across the country. So those are some of our construction and design solutions this year. No, that's really fascinating. And like, again, these solve sort of address different parts of the construction problem. And even like the first one you mentioned, Ape Village, right? A little bit of finance in there too, like trying to address some of the, maybe one of the harder parts of ADUs, which is making it more accessible for people to build ADUs and own and operate ADUs and, and get that additional rental income while also providing affordable housing. So really interesting solutions and excited to hear about all three of them. Kent, we have one category left, policy and regulatory reform. So anxious to hear about uh, what you found here. Lots of interesting things going on, and uh, I'm going to sort of cover four. If you have three categories, you're going to have three in two of them, and one of them will have four. And that's the way it was with respect to uh, policy and regulatory. The, The first one really grapples with an issue we raised before, which is this whole issue of education and developing manpower to build housing. Um, it, it's name of the company is Build Up. It's located in Ensley, Alabama. It's a nonprofit private school that replaces a traditional high school and college experience by offering students an integrated curriculum that combines academic coursework with hands-on paid apprenticeships in conjunction with construction and real estate. Students work with local industry professionals to build and renovate blighted homes in their communities. And on completing the six-year program, students earn a high school diploma, an associate degree, and become eligible. And this is what's really interesting, to purchase one of the homes that they've helped to build with no down payment and a zero-interest mortgage. Upon graduation, students are prepared to either join the workforce or pursue post secondary education. Ultimately, they have a path to both building a successful career in the home building world and to, you know, have sustainable wealth. So it's fascinating to see what they're doing. And one of the reasons they're so successful is Build Up is the first school in Alabama to implement uh, the Home Builders Institute curriculum. The Home Builders Institute is affiliated with the National Association of Home Builders, And they've done a lot of manpower development, education development for training and building in the home field, building field. And they've developed a a curriculum for high school uh, students to to learn about, 
you know, how to build. And so they've been able to use that curriculum as a part of what they've done. And, and it's been very successful to both train and at the same time provide housing affordability. So it's, it's been fascinating. That's really cool. That's uh, to, to think that somebody goes into this program um, before high school, right? They're, and they get a high school diploma and, and they're in a home and, and they probably know a fair amount of things about taking care of that home. That, is, that really has a, a huge impact. It, it does. And, and these, quite frankly, are, come from uh, uh, lower income communities and uh, people of minority. And uh, it's just exciting to see how they've taken the knowledge that's available i.e. provided by the Home Builders Institute and sort of applied that in such a way that really works in a local community. But let me move on. <laughs> uh, there's just a lot to cover here. Uh, the, the next two are, are local governments, and they're classic illustrations of doing something that is scalable and, and we, we hope will be you know, applied in other communities around the country. The first one is in Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, and it's referred to as 100% affordable housing overlay. And what they did in Cambridge is said, you know, we want to develop affordable housing, but we realized that, uh, quite frankly, local government has lots of challenges for builders to overcome, whether it's zoning or whether it's the approval process, whether it's kind of working through our process uh, in terms of meetings that are required, et cetera. And they said, we're going to we're going to, if something is an affordable housing project, we're going to do an overlay as it relates to zoning, setback requirements, parking requirements, an overlay with respect to accelerated approvals, and, and an overlay, quite frankly, with respect to the consultation process in terms of required community meetings and things like that. And, and they have figured out that in such a way that they've been able to bring two significant uh, affordable housing projects to fruition, uh, and others now that are on the books, where they're really taking a, a kind of an overall local government approach to try to build affordable housing. And it, it's, it's really making a difference, and so it's exciting to see. Another, again, which we think it's a very scalable government innovation, uh, is going on in, in Washington, D.C. Uh, the program is the D.C. Flex program, and and this is interesting because you know it's it's not focused on home ownership per se, or, or it's not focused on construction, but it's focused on uh, how can we be creative. And they picked out 125 families which have quote qualified for this kind of assistance. And what they're doing is rather than the money going to the landlord, the money is actually going to the rental. Uh, tenant, if you will. And, and then the tenant on this, it's, it's now kind of in its fourth year pilot program. It was set for three years and it was, uh, it was extended for at least another year. Uh, and, and where the tenant really decides in any given month how much they're going to spend on rent. Uh, and because if they've got the ability to pay more, they'll try to do that. If they don't, then they can draw upon this rental assistance that they have. And, and the funds can only be used for rent, but, but it's one of those things where they don't have to spend it all. They can think creatively about what they're doing. Uh, they're motivated, if you will, to try to, uh, to, to try to go forward in this program and to, and to build and to, uh, 
and, and to proceed. And uh, it, it takes, you know, at-risk populations. Some of them are close to homelessness. It does provide them with other kinds of services as a part of the process, counseling, uh, assistance that they might need in order to manage their course. But this concept of uh, taking rental assistance dollars and giving it to the tenant uh, rather than to the landlord is a very intriguing one, and it's implemented as a part of the D.C. Flex um, program in Washington, D.C. And then the final um, one that I'll talk about related to um, policy and regulatory uh, development is, uh, again, very creative. This is going on in Los Angeles, uh, and, and the name of the nonprofit is L.A. Room and Board, and, and they found another need. These are needs of, of people that are going to California community colleges, but quite frankly, because they don't have the money, while they're going to school, they're faced with homelessness. So they're living in the back of their car. They're struggling from place to place in terms of grappling with that. And what they've done is they've, they've set up a, a home, a facility, if you will, that provides transitional uh, housing, which not only provides housing, but it helps to provide food care also if necessary. Uh, they started with the Opportunity House, which is a sorority house uh, at UCLA, which provides housing stability and supportive services, not for UCLA students in this case, but for community college students uh, to, to give them a bed space and some food and some assistance in that process so that they can go to school in a community college without worrying about where they're going to live tomorrow night, where they're going to get their meals, et cetera. And it's, it's had phenomenal success. 58% of, of the people in the program had their GPA increased. 77% of them were above 3.0. Um, know, 85% received additional credit earns in terms of what they did. A couple of the students transferred to four-year campuses. Um, it, it, it's had some really interesting success as far as helping homeless uh, community college students in California to be able to make that transition to a better life. That's great. And, uh, you know, even the, these last two uh, nominees with DC Flex, um, you know, creating a situation where, you know, renters are, you know, actively considering um, their budget and, and how they use those funds and uh, certainly building skills in, in personal finance. And then, you know, with LA Room and Board, and, you know, you consider that people are investing in their human capital, right? They're getting an education and the, and they're deserving certainly of, of stable housing. And they'll take advantage of that, as you say, uh, by improving their, their position even in, in their grade point average at the current time. So uh, that's really fantastic. And all of this discussion really um, highlights just the one, um, just how much work it is to go through 170 of these and how much great work is, is being done um, to, to get down to this level. And two, just uh, just the incredible things that are being done in the housing market, uh, which really are needed right now because uh, affordability is such a big issue um, that uh, any any kind of uh, advancement or innovation is is so necessary and so needed um, with uh, with the cost of housing going up so much uh, in the in the past year. Um, so, but with that, I'm I'm really excited to hear about the winners. So, uh, um, obviously, everybody is doing great work, but uh, which ones uh, made it to the top? Abby, you begin. <laughs> 
Awesome. I'm, I'm happy to jump in. We're really excited to announce our winners this year. So Kent kind of gave a description on everyone, but our winner in finance was Blackstar Stability just because they've been doing some amazing things. Um, and that's with those CFDs, which, you know, can be a pretty crazy space if you are caught in one of those predatory contracts. And then Kent, do you want to announce our winner in construction and design? Uh, you go ahead. You, you, oh, I got it. Okay, you, I'll you, run you're through. You're the one that's, that's immersed in this. I think you ought to announce all the winners. Okay. <laughs> all right. So the winner in construction and design um, is the Volumetric Building Companies, um, or VBC, that's out of Philadelphia. Um, and we're really excited to see how they grow over the next few years. And then in the policy and regulatory reform category, uh, buildup was our winner. And uh, really with VBC and buildup, just a huge emphasis from our judges, I think, this year on solutions that are kind of tapping into that labor shortage. And we really appreciate all that buildup's been doing. Um, they're, they're quite an amazing organization. So those are our winners for 2022. Not 2023. But we'll be back in 2023. <laughs> <laughs> that is fantastic. I, I know next year's winners. So. <laughs> yes. Yes, but I know already who they will be. Uh, um, so so let's, uh, that, that's really great. And thank you so much for, for joining us again. This, this was such a great discussion and so encouraging to see all, all of this innovation. Uh, but let's take a little bit of a look back before we before we end the discussion today. Because we are a few years in, into the prize, what have you seen with some of the previous winners? Yeah, I'm, I can hop on this really quickly. So um, we've seen a lot of things. We, we like to keep track with that, uh, with each of these companies and or organizations. And um, the something that's really interesting is Kent's probably talked about this in like former podcasts, but the legislation that was passed in the state of Oregon um, and also Minneapolis, uh, where it eliminated single family zoning. Um, we've seen that legislation start to scale across the country, which will be really interesting to see what the eventual, you know, outcomes are on that. But I, I mean, I'll be excited to see that on the policy side of things. California, by the way, passed that kind of state legislation this year. So just a classic illustration of what Abby was saying. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's moving. And then one of our top 10 companies, um, from last year, Suzu, um, just raised a billion dollar or just reached a billion dollar valuation on their last raise, uh, which was pretty amazing. And they do, um, they kind of, what they're doing is they're doing credit reporting for renters. Uh, so you're, if you're renting, your credit is typically not reported, but they've figured out something so that it is. And it's, um, and it, they try to keep it helpful and not harmful, you know, um, but it's actually been helping people quite a bit with getting their credit scores up. So we were excited to see them be, have such a successful fundraise um, this last year. And then um, I think, you know, one of our other partners who was a first year winner, um, Home Partners of America, they, um, they do a lease to own program. And when they got the Ivory Prize money, they kind of came in and started to redevelop a product um, where they were targeting a lower AMI than they were targeting with their traditional product. So like an 80% AMI um, individual or like someone who fell in that category um, can now qualify for this um, program or it's called Choice Lease is the program that they just rolled out. So if you are making 80% of the area median income 
um, you can qualify for a, like a rent to own product, which is actually pretty awesome. Um, so that people can start building equity, um, in, in their housing. And we were really, really excited to see that. So those are a couple of examples. Uh, we have more, <laughs> um, but those are the first three that kind of come to mind when I'm thinking of looking back, I guess. And one thing that, that I would say, and it is illustrated by what Abby says, not only do we track, um, uh, what I think Abby and Clark Ivory and all the people at Ivory Innovations working, of course, with the advisory board, et cetera, have tried to do is develop a community of innovation related to housing affordability. So uh, it's the winners are great, but each year it's really the top 10 that we'll focus on. And for example, in November, we're going to have an event where we'll partner with the Urban Institute uh, and, and, and display, you know, the work of the top 10 uh, in each of these areas uh, be, because it really becomes not just one innovation that we want to talk about, but we want to talk about the multitude of innovations that are going on around the country. And, and to use that to not only encourage scale with respect to these innovations, but to encourage other people to recognize that uh, you can wait for somebody else to try to solve the problem of housing innovation, but even more importantly, you can dive in and try to do it right now in your community and in your location. That's so well said, Kent. And uh, thank you, Kent. And thank you, Abby, for, for being with us uh, fourth year in a row. Uh, really looking forward to the 10th anniversary show that we do. And we'll have to do a long look back at, at what's going on with all, all the win- what has gone on with all the winners o- over a decade. But still got six years to go until then. But uh, thanks again. Thank you. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast is produced and supported by a team of our Freddie Mac colleagues, including our production manager, Melissa Bosma, editor, Stephanie Heston, and audio producer, Dalton O'Cola. To listen to more and keep up with the latest episodes, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And check our website, mf.freddiemac.com slash research for the full catalog of podcast episodes and original Freddie Mac research.